Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we gently massage weird and wonderful science into your brain. On this edition, cloning Michelle, steam heroes and telekinesis by computer. But first up, here's the news. A few weeks ago, the operators of the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant in Vernon, Vermont, detected a leak. About 225 litres of water a minute was escaping from the eastern cooling tower of the 620 megawatt power plant that provides nearly three quarters of the state's electricity needs. By noon, the owners had shut down both the damaged and undamaged cooling towers and had cut the plant's electricity output in half to avoid any harm to the reactor. A few days later, the plant was operating at 23% capacity because of limits to the amount of water it could use from the Connecticut River to cool its nuclear core. A spokesperson for Energy Vermont Yankee, the power company that runs the 35-year-old nuclear facility, says it should be back at full capacity by the end of the week, pending a safety inspection by the US Regulatory Commission. The leak was caused by a sagging bracket supporting a cooling pipe in the eastern tower. This is a problem because the bracket, a piece of metal that bolts a support beam in place, was new. All of the brackets in the two towers, which are made of wood, have been replaced after a similar cooling pipe collapse in the western tower last August. The brackets are now being replaced with a new, stronger design. But it's all still made of wood. The spokesperson said that neither of these problems affected the safety of the nuclear power plant, because the towers are primarily used to cool the water before it's put back into the Connecticut River, so it doesn't scold too many fish. The race to the moon goes underground. Associated Press say that the engineers that are working on NASA's new Ares moon rockets by day, by night, go undercover to work on a competing design. The dissenting scientists and their backers insist they've created an alternative rocket that would be safer, cheaper and easier to build than the two airy spacecraft that will replace the space shuttle. They call their project Jupiter. And like Ares, it's a brainchild of workers at the Marshall Space Flight Center and other NASA facilities. The engineers involved are doing the work on their own time and mostly anonymously, with the help of retirees and other space enthusiasts. A key Ares project manager dismisses their design as little more than a sketch on a napkin that won't work. A spokesman for the Jupiter project, Ross Tierney, said concerned engineers at NASA and some contractors want a review of the Ares plans but can't speak up for fear of being demoted, transferred or fired. The Jupiter design is being reviewed by a team of 57 volunteer engineers, from line engineers up to NASA middle managers. Those numbers are dwarfed by NASA's Ares workforce, which has thousands of government workers and contractors. NASA informally reviewed Jupiter plans for the rocket last fall and determined the idea to be a flawed scheme based on shaky numbers. Meanwhile, work on the Ares rocket is so far along that the first test flight is less than a year away. By 2015, the agency plans to begin orbital flights with Ares 1 and a companion heavy lift cargo rocket, Ares 5. Officials hope to return astronauts to the moon by 2020. Astronauts will ride into orbit in a capsule aboard Ares-1, which will have a modified shuttle booster rocket at its core. They will dock with a lunar stage that was carried aloft separately by an Ares-5 rocket and head to the moon. 
The Jupiter design would also require two separate launches to get to the moon, but its rockets would both rely on a shuttle external tank at their centre. Besides being a simpler, more powerful system backers say, the Jupiter rockets would save NASA $19 billion in developmental costs and another $16 billion in operating costs over two decades. The Government Accountability Office last year raised questions about the cost of NASA's current plan for returning to the Moon, which a report estimated at $230 billion over 20 years. NASA said it already has spent about $7 billion on Ares. Steve Metchton, an engineer and former NASA contractor who supports the Jupiter team, accused NASA of suppressing information that shows Jupiter would perform better than Ares. Metchton says his concern is that by the time everyone realises it's better, they'll have destroyed their heavy lift system. And at the end of the day, all they're asking for is an independent review. Next up, Michelle Kovacevic explains cloning. Science fiction makes people think strangely about cloning. That crazy scientists are only interested in producing Frankenstein-esque monsters of themselves or are using this selective mechanism to create the perfect race. In fact, science has the potential to do a lot more than this. There are two main types of cloning that are prevalent in the media and science industries at the moment. That being therapeutic cloning, used for regenerative medicinal purposes, and reproductive cloning, which is the type of cloning that created Dolly the Sheep. There are obviously ethical problems in sacrificing human embryos for a source of embryonic stem cells. Another limitation of the technology is that we cannot transplant embryonic stem cells which are genetically different to the cells of the recipient as it leads to immunological rejection. Therapeutic cloning is being hailed as a solution to the rejection of embryonic stem cells. So, how does it all work? Well, therapeutic cloning is advocated as an important technology to permit development of cures for genetic and other diseases. It relies on the use of embryonic stem cells, which, as the name suggests, are derived from embryos and are pluripotent. That is, that they can form any embryonic tissue cells and can, in principle, be used to repair any tissue as long as we know the differentiation signals and pathways. To describe the basic process of therapeutic cloning, Cells from a diseased mouse are isolated in culture and their nucleuses are removed. These diseased mice nuclei are then injected into an enucleated mouse oocyte, in simple terms, a mouse embryonic stem cell without a nucleus. The cell is then electrically zapped to start cell division and cultured to form an early embryo. This early embryo can be handled one of two ways. It can either be implanted in a foster mother to produce a genetically identical clone, which is commonly known as reproductive cloning, or it can be transferred to a culture dish and manipulated or therapeutically cloned. Dolly the sheep was the first animal to be reproductively cloned. The cell used as the donor for the cloning of Dolly was taken from a mammary gland and the subsequent creation of Dolly, a healthy clone, showed that an adult differentiated cell taken from a specific body part could once again become pluripotent and recreate the same animal. Some scientists believe that reproductive cloning may eventually become a viable tool for preserving endangered species. However, using cloning regularly would result in a severe loss of genetic diversity within species, as all of the clones produced would be genetically identical. This would have a severe impact on evolution and natural selection. 
In any case, reproductive cloning is still highly inefficient, with 95% of the implanted embryos dying and 50% of the mothers dying if gestation occurs too late. Out of the 277 attempts, Dolly was the only lamb that fully matured. Therapeutic cloning, on the other hand, uses embryonic stem lines to study disease and look at the potential for using cells therapeutically. When the early embryo is transferred to a culture dish instead of, as in reproductive cloning, where it is implanted into a uterus, scientists then isolate the diseased embryonic stem cells and repair the mutated gene which causes them to be diseased. This is the most difficult part of the entire process and often doesn't work as well as it should. Should the gene be repaired effectively, then they expand this culture of repaired cells and eventually they inject it back into the diseased mouse, where the cells proliferate and supposedly cure the disease. These cells are all derived from a mouse, hence immunological rejection is not an issue as the cells are recognised as self and are hence not destroyed by the mouse's immune system. Obviously, the power of this technology is great, but there is also great power to abuse this technology should it fall into the hands of the wrong researcher. And stem cell technology is one scientific field which is constantly marred by controversy. In 2005, a South Korean scientist was hailed when he claimed his team had created the first cloned human embryos and extracted stem cells from them. They allegedly created 11 new stem cell lines by taking genetic material from a human patient and putting it into a donated egg, and hence the resultant cells were a perfect match for the individual and could mean treatments for diseases such as diabetes without the problem of immunological rejection. However, less than a year later, the scientist was found to have faked his research. Britain became the first country to legalise the cloning of human embryos for stem cell research in 2001, and since then, the stem cell debate has become quite heated in Australia, as technological advances in the field were coming fast and furious. In December 2006, the Australian government lifted a four-year ban on therapeutic cloning of human embryos for stem cell research. This being said, there are still a large number of restrictions for stem cell researchers as the cloned embryos cannot be implanted into a womb and must be destroyed after 14 days. However, this does allow Australian scientists to be at the forefront of stem cell research, collaborating with labs in the US, the UK and Singapore among others. The next step is pushing for human stem cell trials to be clinically available so that cures for human diseases can be tested in, well, humans. Perhaps what the Australian government needs to realise is that the goal in all of this is not to create cloned human beings, but rather to harvest stem cells that can be used to study human development and to potentially treat and cure disease. What is certain is that it is difficult to create a policy whereby enough restrictions are present so that a, such a potent technology is not abused, yet allow it to be liberal enough so that effective progress can be made. Perhaps this is the real challenge we are facing in stem cell research. And that was Michelle Kovacevic with cloning. Lachlan Whitmore takes us back to the very first steam engine and its inventor, Hero of Alexandria.
In the first instalment of this series, I spoke about ancient mechanics, and I mentioned one man in particular, Hero of Alexandria. Hero, also known as Heron of Alexandria, is easily regarded as one of the best engineers and mathematicians of the ancient world. Despite a comparatively large body of his work surviving for us to read, Hero's birthplace, date of birth and even his nationality have been disputed. Most historians these days believe he was Greek, although a certain number maintain that he was Egyptian, and others declare that he was Phoenician. Similarly, common consensus these days has him born around the time of Christ, about 10 AD, and dying in about 75 AD. However, it was once believed that he lived around 150 BC, or that he lived around 250 AD, which gives us an interval of 400 years in which to place him. Let's go with the mainstream view and assume that he was Greek and lived at the time of Christ. One thing we don't have to argue over is where he lived, the wonderful cosmopolitan city of Alexandria in Egypt, founded by Alexander the Great 300-odd years before and by Hero's time a thriving centre of scholarship. While it hasn't been proven, it would be reasonable to assume that Hero taught mathematics, physics, mechanics and pneumatics at the museum in Alexandria. This is given weight when you look at his writings. They look like lecture notes and are not written in the style one would expect of a formal publication. Okay, but what did Hero of Alexandria do? Well, I'll get to his mechanical work in a minute, but first I'll go over his body of written work. Hero left behind a large body of work, and as I mentioned, a lot of it has survived to the modern era. This is good, because many ancient writings didn't. Hero wrote books on practical matters. They include On the Diopter which deals with surveying and the operation of the theodolite, the automaton theatre, which described a mechanical puppet theatre operated by strings, pulleys and weights, the Bella Poica, which described the building of military engines, and a specialist text, the Cairo Balustra, which focused on the construction of catapults, the Metrica, which defined methods of measurement, the Mechanica, which was written in three volumes and owes a lot to the work of Archimedes. Book one looks at the theory of motion, the theory of the balance and other geometrical subjects. Book two is more practical and looks at lifting heavy objects with levers, wedges and pulleys. Book three addresses transport methods such as the use of sledges, cranes and, as a bit of an aside, wine presses, which has little to do with transport, but I thought I'd mention it anyway. However, in my humble opinion, Hero's most important work is the Pneumatica. It was a long, rambling work written in two volumes and described mechanical devices powered by water, air or steam. It includes over 100 descriptions of various machines, including fire engines, wind organs, coin-operated machines and, to quote Hero himself, trick jars that give out wine or water separately or in constant proportions, singing birds and sounding trumpets, puppets that move when a fire is lit on an altar Animals that drink when offered water. These sound like toys. They are. It would appear that Hero built toys to demonstrate mechanical principles. His most famous toy was also the first steam engine. It was the Elipile, a device that did absolutely nothing except spin round and round. The Elipile consisted of a hollow sphere which was mounted on hollow tubes in such a way that it could rotate using the tubes as axles. The tubes received steam from a cauldron at the base of the assembly and the steam flowed into the sphere. Emerging from the sphere were two opposing cylinders which bent at right angles and thus acted as jets for the release of steam. Both jets fired in the same rotational direction and thus provided the sphere with rotary torque, which means it went round and round. 
As I mentioned, the early pile didn't perform mechanical work. This isn't as surprising as it sounds. Many pioneering technologies didn't find practical applications until a second generation of technicians looked at them. One example of this is gunpowder. However, as the first steam-powered device, the significance of the early pile cannot be stressed enough. It would be many more centuries before pneumatic power of steam would be pressed into service, and that will be the subject of our next instalment. Stay tuned. Thank you, Lachlan Watmore. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Being able to control something with merely the power of your mind is a concept that human beings have been fascinated with for centuries. An Australian company, Emotive Systems, has found a way to make this happen. They're releasing a handset in the US later this year that will enable players to control video games using only the power of their mind. In a similar way to voice recognition, the software recognises electrical patterns in your brain, which then translates to the avatar on screen. Facial expressions, emotions and even thoughts are registered through the headset, enabling players to perform in-game actions just by imagining it. Daz Chandler spoke with the co-founder and president of Emotive Systems, Tan Lee, on the phone from San Francisco for this interview. One of my favourite t-shirts of all time bemoans the fact that we're living in the noughties and we don't yet have jetpacks hoverboards or tasty meals in pill form. But I've got to say, the headset which you guys created is the stuff that dreams of the year 2000 were made of in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Absolutely. Maybe (laughs) even before that. (laughs) What planted the seed? How did this incredible piece of technology come about? Well, the seed was around the idea of evolving the way that humans interact with machines. Because if you look at the way that we do that today in conventional human-computer interaction, it's very much limited to conscious inputs. So the way that we communicate with computers is we give it a command, a very specific command, in order for it to do anything for us. But then if you look, on the other hand, at communication between people, it's so much more interesting because we take a lot more into our decision-making process than what is actually just explicitly expressed. So we observe facial expressions, we look at body language, we intuit feelings and emotions into our dialogue with one another. And really, that's what emotive vision is all about. It's about moving this communication between humans and computers beyond the limits of conscious input so that we can start to introduce this closer dialogue through the computer medium and start to introduce things with this feedback around facial expressions, emotions. And uh, yeah, we do that by just tapping directly into inputs from the brain so that the brain is our center for control and experience. And by tapping into the brain, we're able to get a lot more information than other conventional mediums. Now, the million-dollar question, Tan, which no doubt you've answered zillions of times, my apologies, how exactly, in layman's terms, does the headset read our thoughts and emotions and then translate them across to the avatar on screen? So the way that it's done is the brain is made up of billions of active neurons. When the neurons interact with each other, the um, chemical reaction emits an electrical impulse that we can measure just from the surface of the head. It's a totally non-invasive technology. You put the headset on, there are a series of sensors that just pick up these changes in electrical fluctuations. And with the recent advancements in signal processing techniques, 
machine learning algorithms and proprietary technology that we've built at Emotive and developed at Emotive, we're able to actually differentiate and distinguish between very distinct thoughts, emotions, and expressions. And today we've announced in excess of 30 unique detections, whether it be facial expressions, whether it be emotions, or cognitive intent. And we're really only at the beginning of the journey, but it's already offers a very compelling experience. Give me an example of some of the 30 expressions, thoughts or emotions that can be detected by this device. Sure. So at the moment, you know, you can do things like smile very naturally, blink, wink, grimace, smirk, raise your eyebrows, furrow your eyebrows. We can detect for emotions such as tension, frustration, immersion, meditation, you know, excitement, engagement. And in terms of cognitive thoughts, we can even distinguish whether you're thinking about pushing an object forward, lifting it, making it go left, right, rotate in six different axes. And then this year, we also announced very recently this whole new category of detections based on purely visualizations. There's no actual metaphor for it in the physical world uh, where you can actually, the first detection of its kind is disappear. So you actually just imagine and visualize this virtual object disappearing in front of you and we capture your brain waves when you do that and then we are able to classify that thought every time you think. So it's, it's quite amazing. It really goes to the core fantasy of what humans have always wanted to control the universe with our minds. But this new detection suite based on visualization really goes to the heart of that. And is there much of a lapse in time from when the headset registers the emotion of the user to actually affecting the avatar on screen? Each of the detections are quite unique in their own way. So the expressive and affective detections are very... So the expressive being facial expressions, the affective being emotional detections, both of those are instantaneous. So you really don't see any you know, latency that's transparent to the human eye. With the um, cognitive detections, it's unlike the other two suites where, first of all, there is a brain thinking process where you actually have to show the computer how you actually think about this particular action and that takes six seconds, as little as six seconds for you to be able to show the machine how it's done and then after that there's generally a one second delay so it's relatively quick. You're planning to release the Epoch headset in the US later this year, is that right? That's correct, yes, in time for Christmas. So given a whole new type of gaming console is going to have to be developed in order to be compatible with the headset, have you been working closely with any of the larger gaming manufacturers? Yeah, we have been. And in fact, the wonderful thing about the product that we're actually releasing this year is that it comes bundled with a game. So like the Wii with Wii Sports, it's a hardware device that is bundled with a dedicated piece of software that really showcases the detections and the game that we're bundling with it really goes to the core fantasy of being able to control the universe with your mind. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we're also bundling the headset with a software called EmoKey which actually provides backwards compatibility so that you can actually play any of your pre-existing PC games any game that really has fantasy about magic or whether you want to use facial expressions or you want to tie emotions into the game, you can actually extend the feature set of the headset to those games that you already have in your library. This is something that is unlike uh, some of the other products that have been released in the past. It actually extends the features of the headset beyond just the game that's bundled with it. And lastly, there's also a web platform that 
we're working with more than 1,500 developers already who are working actively with a whole range of different applications that support the headset. So whether it be music, art, you know, chat applications, online games, there's a whole raft of applications that application developers are developing to support the headset. And beyond that, we're also working very closely with leading game studios, publishers to work on some original content. And Tan, aside from gaming and personal entertainment uses of the headset, how else do you see this technology being utilised? Because given what you've said to me so far, I'm imagining it being used in instances of disability with conditions like quadriplegia, for instance. Absolutely. And in fact, we are very much engaged with the accessibility component of this application because I think it's a really important aspect of this technology. It is an interface device and so therefore it does have applications way beyond just the gaming community. We've chosen the gaming sector and the entertainment space because the industry is ripe for innovation of this kind. But beyond this segment, we can see extensions beyond the gaming sector to other vertical markets, whether it be accessibility-type uses, healthcare applications, educational-based market research. I mean, there's a whole raft of global Fortune 500 companies that we are engaged with at the moment and working closely with to really extend the capabilities of the, the headset and also the applications of the headset beyond the gaming sector. That was Daz Chandler speaking with Tan Lee, co-founder and president of Emotive Systems, about the Epoch headset, which will be released in the States and available online later this year. For more information, go to www.emotiv.com and listen to Daz on the Fourth Estate on 2SCR Fridays at 9am. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have any feedbacks, comments, suggestions, or just a little praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Lachlan Motmore, Michelle Kovacevic, and Daz Chandler. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.